Welcome back to Psychedelic Therapy Frontiers, the podcast devoted to exploring the frontiers of psychedelic medicine and what it takes to cultivate a healthy mind, body, and spirit. I'm Dr. Steve Thayer, and today my co-host, Dr. Reed Robison, and I talk about all things ketamine. We've talked a lot about ketamine-assisted therapy on the show, um, but we haven't done an episode dedicated to the topic in quite a while. We've got a lot of new listeners, so we figured we would do another little deep dive for you. So if you find this episode informative and you've got other people in your life, in your circle that are interested in ketamine, ketamine-assisted psychotherapy, uh, send them the episode. If you'd like to support us, you can do that by leaving a review or a rating in places like Apple Podcasts and Spotify. If you're listening on YouTube, you can like the video, subscribe to the Numinous YouTube channel, and as I said, share the episode with a friend. If you'd like to contact us, you can email us at ptfpodcast at numinous.com. That's N-U-M-I-N-U-S. Please enjoy the episode on ketamine and ketamine-assisted therapy. And we're back. Hello. How's it going, Reed? Excellent. Good. How are you? I am also excellent. Yeah. I'm actually, yeah, I'm doing really well. Looking forward to the holidays. We're recording this right before Christmas, uh, hence the winter background behind mm-hmm. you. Do you have any big plans? Um, not big ones. No. That you want to reveal on here? Yeah, I mean, they're super big plans, but they're <laughs> super secret. No, we're just going to chill. We're going to have a chill Christmas just with the family, and then I've got some family coming into town after that. Hopefully, they can make it down here. Spiking the punch at family dinner with uh, I would psychedelics? Love, I would love to do that. <laughs> <laughs> no, I wouldn't. Uh, we're all about consent. No, I, I'd love for my family to have an altered state experience. Do you remember that Ram Dass story about when he accidentally went to a family lunch on LSD? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's pretty awesome because he was working at Harvard doing these psychedelic studies, and he said he his timing was off. He took a big dose, a little late, and he was still very, very much tripping by the time he showed up at this family thing. He's like, oh, no. But it turned out amazing because he's sitting there, and this is the place he gets triggered. He would talk about every time he'd reach enlightened states, uh, the one thing that would bring him crashing down would be like talking to his parents or mm-hmm. something or his siblings. So he shows up at this dinner and the normal jabs from his brother, uh, comments from his mom, mm-hmm. um, he saw them coming at him as these slow motion arrows. Oh yeah, that's right. And then he would just like, like poof them away mm-hmm. with love in this psychedelic state. And then he'd send hearts back at them with his words, but in this visual experience. And then at the end of the the lunch, uh, the family remarked, wow, this is the best family meal we've had that I can remember. He was just (laughs) like, whoa. Yeah. I like that image, that imagery of sort of things coming at you slowly and being able to sort of flick them away. That's certainly been my experience with some of my, my therapeutic psychedelic experiences. My, excuse me, my first one, uh, I think I've said this in the podcast before, but it was like I was—I had this experience of, oh, this is mindfulness. This is what it really feels like to see thoughts coming at you slowly that you would have just taken for granted, that would have hit you subliminally yeah. and just be like, oh, I don't think I like that one and flicking it away. Yeah, that state of very heightened awareness, mm-hmm. like loving awareness, ideally, if you're coming in with the right mindset. Right. Yeah, lots of different medicines that can produce that kind of mindset. Today, we thought it might be useful to revisit ketamine. In some of our earliest episodes, we talked about ketamine, ketamine-assisted psychotherapy, it being the uh, the only you know legal psychedelic in most places. Um, 
and you know even calling it a psychedelic is some people think that uh it doesn't belong underneath that umbrella but we should talk about that i think we should talk about that so since we've accumulated a lot of new listeners over the last few months we thought it might be fun to just revisit ketamine and ketamine assisted therapy yeah, I like it. I like it. And by the way, ketamine is very much not recommended for family dinners. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> do not. Do not. Um, so maybe we could just start with uh, what? what is it? What is ketamine? I'm going to pass it to you, Reed. Yeah. Ketamine is only FDA approved as a dissociative anesthetic. So for use in anesthesia, widely used in other areas, including pain, depression, Depression for the last uh, couple decades, its psychedelic use dates back even further, probably 50 years. Mm. Um, But uh, it's now broadly categorized as a psychedelic. You have your classic psychedelics and then this broader category that includes things like ketamine and MDMA with other mechanisms that occasion a non-ordinary state of consciousness that let you wander in the mind like ketamine does. Yeah, with that term psychedelic meaning that wandering or manifesting the mind, the psyche or the soul. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I had a, I remember had a, a therapy client who had hip surgery. She also struggled with pretty severe depression. Uh, and I think she said that part of the anesthesia cocktail they gave her included ketamine. Um, and that she'd never had any ketamine-assisted therapy mm-hmm. up, up till this point. And she... Uh, I came back to me for a session after surgery and she was like, you know, that suicidal thoughts I've been dealing with, I just, they're gone. Like I don't feel them. They mm-hmm. eventually came back, but it was uh, pretty incredible with, with just going into that anesthetic dose was even for her helpful psychologically. Yeah. And that's where the depression studies stemmed from is like, like most uh, scientific hypotheses do is people coming out of anesthesia like observed by some astute clinicians to be less depressed. Like, what's going on here? Like, what medicine? And then I think it was the year 2000, the first pivotal IV ketamine for depression study was done by uh, Berman and colleagues, I think at Yale. Mm. And then uh, and then replicated by an NIMH group um, showing like a 70% response rate really quickly. 70% of people had at least, their, de- their depression at least cut in half within a day or two. Um, and we could talk about the duration. There's some considerations there, but, but, uh, maybe back to the, 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 um, psychedelic Mm. properties a little bit. Did you know the term psychonaut came from ketamine? No, actually. I did not know that. It was, I think 1970, this guy, I can't say his name, Ernst Jungerwich. Do you know German pronunciation? (laughs) Unfortunately not. Uh, and he, he coined the term psychonaut, which means sailors of the soul mm. because of ketamine's uh, uh, psychedelic or psychonautical explorers um, using it to explore their psyches back then. I like that. Yeah, the, the, I love the nautical metaphor or way of thinking about uh, a psychedelic experience. It's often called a trip, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because and, and ketamine in particular feels like this sailing experience. You, you might be sailing through subliminal consciousness. You might be sailing yeah. through space. Uh, but there is sort of a voyage aspect mm-hmm. to a ketamine experience. I remember one of my early ketamine experiences in a clinic back, uh, this is well over a decade ago, um, and it felt like I was flying, soaring. You know the the ride soaring over California yeah. at Disneyland where yeah. you're like flying over. It felt like that. I was flying over like villages and 
memories and places that were near and dear to me, just like flying over it. It was the wildest thing while simultaneously sinking into the the sofa I was on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've had similar sort of soaring experiences. Although one time I had this experience where I was at first, like it felt like I was floating through the hangar bay of a giant alien spaceship. Mm-hmm. And there wasn't a lot of, to see. It was very dark, but there was ang- angles. And so it felt like I was in a giant room in space. Um, yeah. And then I quickly descended down to planet Earth and I felt this this spinning motion, which a lot of people experience yep. sort of spinning um, on ketamine, which is sometimes why they feel nauseated. But, um, so I feel like I'm this, this drill basically. Yeah. And you know, those children's toys where you push the plunger and then the, the, the toy spins. Yep, yep. So I felt like that, like my head was the plunger. And then I, I just drilled, I started to surrender myself to it cause it was a little uncomfortable. And after I surrendered myself to the spinning, sort of let myself spin, I drilled to the center of the earth and then this is a little dramatic, but I, I healed the earth with the love. Nice <laughs> that job, that Steve. Yeah. So yeah, I, I, I healed the world. You're I remember everybody. I remember that. I believe I was there. It was yeah. one of our study trainings mm-hmm. uh, that we're doing with a bunch of other sites for end-of-life anxiety using CAP, mm-hmm. ketamine-assisted psychotherapy. Yeah, you'll hear it called CAP and CAT, ketamine-assisted mm-hmm. therapy. But Yeah, so um, the spinning, falling, soaring, uh, sailing one is, is interesting because, well, the first book on ketamine psychedelic use was in the late 70s. This lady named Marsha Moore, it was called Journeys into the Bright Mind. And I thought that was a cool title. I haven't read the book. I want to mm-hmm. I'll get my hands on a copy. But but uh, what do you think of Journeys into the Bright Mind as a description of the ketamine experience? I like that. For me and for a lot of my clients, it's also like journeys into the expansive heart, like Mm -hmm. uh, to the extent that you would separate the two, mind and heart. But um, yeah. And bright is interesting because a lot of people experience a lot of darkness on ketamine. It's not as as colorful. Some people, lots of colors, lots of visual imagery, but I've had clients say that it's just completely black. Or... Or completely white, I've heard too. Mm. Like, like they're like, that was so weird. The first medicine I've experienced that I just close my eyes, it hits and I see light. Mm. But I'd say more people have, and I've had uh, thousands of ketamine trip reports reported mm-hmm. immediately to me after journeys. And I'd say more end up being dark. And there's often that Tron, Minecraft, mm. someone came out of it and said that was like Ant-Man. Um, there, there's that, uh, that kind of signature sometimes Mm -hmm. and commonly a falling as the world's like crumbling. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Almost every time I've experienced ketamine therapeutically, it's been, uh, for a falling heaviness. I remember, I think the first time I had a ketamine treatment, it was, uh, very, we call it a dissociative anesthetic. I felt like I was, my body was, was scattered across the universe and the entity that was Steve was detached and viewing this body as it was expanding, you know, out to the, the outer reaches of, of the universe. Yeah. That's another common feature. My first ketamine study, this is like 2010, 2011. Uh, well, my first ketamine study before studying for depression, I was involved in a study of ketamine, to bring about a model of psychosis, Mm. to study psychosis. That one was, just like LSD, it has these these multiple possible uses, um, mostly uh, 
as a psychedelic or psycholytic, and we can talk about that, and also to bring about a psychotic-like experience. And yeah. these medicines don't perf perfectly mimic, mimic uh, traditional psychosis, but a lot of the features there, at least in a temporary way, uh, which is easier for most to navigate because you, you often know it's going to wear off. You mm -hmm. don't always remember that. <laughs> but, right. uh, but yeah, the second study I did was IV ketamine for depression. And I had to ask people 40 minutes in, and then again, like an hour and a half later, all these questions from the clinician administered dissociative state scale about like, are your body parts seeming bigger or smaller? Is time speeding up, slowing down? What's happening to time and space and colors? And and uh, yeah, like you said, there there can be an expanding of you or a dissolving of you. Um, it can kind of go in either direction. And I wonder if that dissociative property of ketamine, I wonder if it isn't one of the active ingredients in why it's such an effective therapeutic agent. Yeah, I think so. A lot of us <clears throat> have uh, the things that cause us psychological distress are tied up in our body or our over our over identification with our body, and it and it's it's related to that that idea of ego disillusionment or the dissolving of mm -hmm. the I am um, that that is so common in psychedelics. Mm -hmm. One of my uh, main, our main ketamine teachers, Phil Wolfson, mm -hmm. uh, says it's a timeout. It's a timeout out of body, out of bounded space, out of bounded time. And if you look at the mechanism of ketamine, one of the ways, the many ways it works neurobiologically is like through these calcium channel blockers. And as you increase the dose, it like slows down thoughts, giving you more space. Mm -hmm. Like, um, turning down the noise so you can really explore um, less interrupted your psyche, your uh, true self. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've seen that be particularly effective for people whose depression um, is connected to their tendency to ruminate, to yeah. just sort of get stuck on particular thinking patterns. And it seems to be pretty effective for people with OCD because mm -hmm. um, they get, a, like you described, a little bit of space because the thoughts slow down and then they can look at the thoughts from this third person perspective instead of being over-identified with the thoughts. Yeah. I was at uh dinner recently and uh, a previous client from years ago came up and uh, just wanted to report how ketamine had uh, saved, saved his life mm. because, and uh, his primary concern was OCD. And, and it was striking to sit with him through these experiences where he would get that break from a very intense, uh, debilitating rum rumination. Mm -hmm. So we're talking about some of the, the, the po what's possible with ketamine, some of the, the benefits that people have experienced. Of course, we should say that not everybody experiences these things. And yeah. uh, I've had clients who even had initially really positive responses to ketamine and then for their booster sessions, didn't really experience much um, in the way of you know relief from their depression symptoms or even very psychedelic trips. So, you know, one ketamine is one ketamine experience. Um, they don't always replicate. And sometimes people go into ketamine treatment thinking it's either their, their last stop, you know, this is the last resort. I've tried everything mm -hmm. else, very hopeful. And like we're talking about, there are good reasons to be hopeful, but it's not a panacea and it, it doesn't work for everybody. Uh, and there are so many varieties of the ketamine experience and set and setting matter so mm -hmm. much, like what you're bringing in, including those expectations that we have to be careful with. Um, but yeah, ketamine can look like a lot of different things on different days. Um, 
especially across the unique varieties of each individual human. Right. So your, your comment about set and setting, um, can we, can we pivot and go into sort of the different ways we provide ketamine and how we can maximize the therapeutic benefit? Okay, fine. All right. <laughs> I wanted to ask your permission. <laughs> yeah. I, li- I just wanted to talk about ketamine stories from the 50s and 60s and 70s only. Oh, yeah. <laughs> or just tr- our own personal like trip reports. John Lilly. Maybe we can circle back to <laughs> oh, the, 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 uh, the dolphins. dolphins. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's a wild story. Um, but yeah, I just, well, it's at, at the tip of my, my forebrain. Um, so well, as ketamine has become really popular as a treatment for depression, you'll see a lot of these ketamine clinics pop up. Um, we call them IV clinics, or some people who are a little less charitable might call them ketamine factories. But um, you'll go to a place like this, and it's a comfortable setting typically, a chair or a beanbag or something like that. And they'll hook you up to ketamines and maybe give you a little bit of prep. Um, and then you're having your ketamine experience by yourself. And when you come to, they make sure your vitals are good and they send you on your way. And a lot of people experience tremendous benefit from that particular approach. But a lot of these clinics aren't run by mental health professionals. Most, yeah. Um, and, you know, they're, they might be mental health informed, but yeah, they're not, uh, it's not their particular specialty. And so we, I mean, my opinion, I'll speak for myself. <clears throat> I think that can be helpful, but it's not the ideal way to use ketamine therapeutically for mental health concerns. Yeah. And, and I agree because when using it for mental health, ketamine is a deep dive. People often come to ketamine with a serious mental health struggle. And, you know, I believe that the clinic absolutely needs the ability, the personnel to uh, assess and uh, manage someone's like whole mental health um, journey through the Mm -hmm. process. And that might mean a close collaboration with the therapist and prescribers, whoever else is on board, like it can be done. But, uh, but yeah, I do share the concerns of, of people just dropping in and being left, uh, with all this brought up to the surface and not knowing what to do with it. Yeah. Cause ketamine can be a psychic excavation and for people, especially with trauma, um, who have stuff down there underneath the surface that they haven't encountered consciously, it can, it can excavate and unearth that stuff. Yeah. And then if you're sort of just left with a, a thumbs up and a handshake without a lot of post-treatment support, it, it can make people worse, uh, mm-hmm. stirring things up without that support. Yeah. Uh, because often, like we do seem to feel worse before we feel better as we go through old traumas and wounds and stressors. And as things just come up and we're more vulnerable, we're more triggered and, you know, that can be a, a, a potent, uh, formula for transformation if managed in a, in a good way, but otherwise it can be extremely difficult. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's for those individuals that I think guided ketamine assisted therapy is, is indicated and can be really, really helpful. So if meaning that somebody like a therapist is sitting there with you the entire time in case something comes up. Some people on ketamine look like they're under anesthesia, right? They don't move and you're just making sure they're breathing. Um, But some people are very animated and very talkative Mm -hmm. and it can be really helpful to have somebody there holding safe space, like, like the way we would if we're doing psychedelic assisted therapy in one of our clinical trials, right? Um, Where we're there with them the whole time. When I first set up uh, ketamine practice, well, this is back 2010, 2011, um, I was doing it in a in a private practice in that 
misguided way, but at uh, a big hospital, big health system, um, I set up an infusion kind of protocol where people could come into the cancer center uh, and take one of the bays or private rooms and get an infusion. But but after just a few clients, the nurses there called me. They're like, we can't do this. People are like crying during or or talking about stuff we don't know what to do with. So mm -hmm. I had to um, quickly rearrange the schedule and just be present until I had uh, a trained uh, RN who could sit there with me just really close by for these um, repeated uh, treatments for people's severe depression. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I, I think a good case for the, the therapeutic container um, mm -hmm. and support staff and just the whole um, psychotherapeutic context for doing this work. Yeah, yeah. And so um, ketamine, as we were saying, came along first as a rapid antidepressant, you know, where it, it was traditionally in that first study from the 2000, like year 2000 and beyond, given at a very specific dose, 0.5 milligrams per kilogram IV over 40 minutes, and would alleviate most of the depression in most people rather quickly and temporarily. And it also happened to be a potent anti-suicidality med. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's how it started. But in the years that followed, I think, you know, the field, you know, we all collectively got more and more interested in what can be done with that state of consciousness therapeutically on top of its antidepressant properties, hence ketamine-assisted therapy or ketamine-assisted psychotherapy. Right. So and as a therapist, that's what I really love about it is I'll have, you know, it's the treatment isn't about the ketamine specifically. The ketamine assists the therapy process. So I've had clients I've been working with for a long time who've decided to try ketamine um, and ketamine becomes this, this turning point in their treatment because it, it opens them up to certain insights that they were having a hard time accessing mm -hmm. or perspectives or just that, like we were describing before, that break from the way they typically think. Um, and so it's really accelerated the, their, their progress in therapy. So yeah. I really love it for uh, its ability to, as the acronym implies, assist psychotherapy. What did you call it once in our CAP training, uh, ketamine therapy in a bottle? Oh, like yeah, that. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, 10 years of therapy in a day, that kind of thing. Um, not that it does the work for you, like I've said on the podcast many times, but uh, it can certainly help you do the work. Yeah, it it is a, a therapy accelerator for mm -hmm. many, um, a catalyst for therapy, mm -hmm. but the therapy needs to be there to be catalyzed right. and... And it does help people get unstuck. That's where I turn to it often is once we've reached a certain point in someone's treatment course and we've hit some walls that that we've tried to get through otherwise, but uh, need another tool. Yeah. So you mentioned the 0.5 milligrams per kilogram of body weight. Just anecdotally, my observation of the weight-based dosing is it doesn't seem to matter a whole lot. Do, do we know if there are data that support weight-based dosing for at least for a cap or cat? Well, um, since then, and even before that was established, there were some groups in Europe using like a one milligram per kilogram IM, mm -hmm. studying ketamine for, there was a good uh, heroin dependence study that was positive and an alcohol dependence study um, using IM, intramuscular injection, the way we use it most. And we could talk about all these forms right. and doses, but... Uh, 
yeah, I think ketamine 0.5 milligrams per kilogram, sub-anesthetic dose, bringing about this uh, non-ordinary therapeutic state of consciousness was kind of the baseline. But what I think we've all realized is that there's an individual component to it with mm -hmm. everyone. And that may be a good starting point um, if IV or some equivalent I am. Um, but what I do with people like like you do as well, because we've worked a lot together, <laughs> right. is, is taking people um, sequentially, carefully higher, sometimes lower, mm. um, because there's a lot to be gained at all of these levels. Like as the dose increases from this this out-of-body state and heart-open state. Uh, the higher the dose, the more the ego structures dissolve, the more you have that time out from ordinary mind, the more you dissolve into this uh, cosmos or whatever it is you're sailing around in, become one with it, lose that, that sense of individual self that we can cling to too much sometimes. Right. Yeah, so we have different experiences on the menu at different dose levels. Uh, to be used for perhaps different purposes. Um, and then I, I, some of my clients who've done um, a fair amount of ketamine will, sometimes they get into this, oh, I need to go deeper. I need to go deeper. So they'll, mm -hmm. they'll want to climb in the dose. Um, so we don't want to go deeper just for deeper sake, yeah. in my opinion. Because a lot of times um, deeper will eventually just mean, oh, I don't remember much from my ketamine experience. Like <laughs> you start yeah. to reach those higher doses and it gets pretty anesthetic. Yeah. People experience some amnesia and... Sometimes there's like like you were saying some really important things to be gained from those those deeper experiences. But you know if it ain't broke, don't fix it. If if people are this is kind of how I feel now. Mm -hmm. um, if people are having really good therapeutic experiences at a particular dose, um, maybe just stay at that dose for yeah. subsequent treatments. Yeah, I think that's wise. Um, in psychiatric prescribing or psychopharmacology in general, there's uh, this approach that is is used or recommended with most meds of, of uh, starting low, going slow, and increasing as needed to attain the desired therapeutic response. And then some would say, you know, if you have the time and space for it and the careful um, setting and everything, you go one step higher to see if more is gained. Like, mm -hmm. did we get response, but can we go for remission? Um, but that might just mean doing more treatments with ketamine. Mm -hmm. But sometimes it does mean going higher, being like, oh, that was not needed back to where we were. Yeah. And yeah. I've certainly had that experience with some of my clients, just that one step to see what's available. Um, and then maybe we just sort of step back um, or maybe try a different route of administration, right? If they've been having these psychedelic doses via intramuscular injection, um, maybe it's time to try a lower psycholytic dose, maybe by a uh, route of lozenge or a nasal spray. Yeah, so um, I like how you put them in buckets once upon a time of mm. like psychedelic, psycholytic, psychiatric uses mm. of ketamine. Psychedelic meaning the higher doses, all routes lead to psychedelic ketamine land if you take enough. Like you'll need more lozenge than you will injection to get there, right? We could talk about bioavailability, but psychedelic typically means going on a journey, eye shades, headphones, and then, you know, you're, you're preparing before, you're intention setting before, and you're processing after, but there's not as much dialogue during unless some support is needed. Mm -hmm. Psycholytic would mean a lower dose to grease the wheels 
in therapy create a state of openness to kind of lubricate the therapeutic process and that can be lozenge or nasal spray like like you mentioned or in theory a tiny injection right. or low dose iv yeah i think didn't phil call those the transformational and the trance yeah. states yeah and then that third bucket psychiatric would involve like the first way i started using ketamine psychiatrically was just as an antidepressant, a rapid antidepressant to help someone get out of a severe episode quickly um, because our typical meds uh, don't work for everyone and they take too long. You know, depression is a serious concern for so many people. And I, I'm not, uh, when I was talking about those IV clinics, I, I'm not trying to imply that the psychiatric approach is not a good approach. Yeah. Like it can certainly help and it has helped a lot of people. Um, but people that, that end up finding their way to me though, who have tried ketamine at other places are usually at this place where it's been given to them psychiatrically. Like this is a, just like Prozac, right? This is a medicine that's going to help cure your depression and they've experienced some relief and then they find themselves, uh, sort of at a loss for progress. Uh, I've, my depression's kind of coming back. Um, so if I have a criticism for the psychiatric approach, it's that it, it's, uh, it's not taking advantage of all the benefits that you can mm -hmm. therapeutically, like we were talking about with, uh, of ketamine. So like, let's, let's take advantage of all the possibilities here by getting somebody into therapy. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I agree completely. And my strong recommendation is just that if you're going to go, um, to an IV clinic run by say a non-mental health team have a therapist on board who's at least ketamine informed and and uh there and available to work with you through what comes up mm -hmm. and uh in in a collaborative way with that clinic ideally and if you're getting it psychiatrically in any setting uh the same recommendation applies like it's another general uh psychiatric principle of of meds plus therapy is as a general rule better than therapy alone yeah i mean better than meds alone not therapy alone <laughs> well <clears throat> some and some of the some of the research um has i mean some of the data suggests that it is better than therapy alone yeah depending meds, on meds plus therapy is kind of better than either by themselves yeah and it, and it depends on the condition mm -hmm. the medicine and the therapy type <laughs> right exactly yeah because like if you look at something like binge eating disorder just to pick something out of thin air like the gold standard for binge eating disorder in reducing number of binge episodes per week a typical like measure of how someone's doing would be cbt cognitive behavioral therapy but there are medicines that people use there's even like a stimulant fda proof for it that will reduce the number of episodes per week five ants um you know it might on average in the studies, I think it took it from like five or six down to three mm -hmm. binge episodes per week. But CBT was still the gold standard. Mm -hmm. And while the studies aren't often done with meds and therapy together because the drug company's funding the med study and they're, they're understandably just focused on getting that med across the finish line, um, sometimes the NIH or, or others will fund a good combination study and show that it's superior. But Many times we're left to theorize mm -hmm. that that therapy is better, and therapy, um, you know, and I think you know we strongly believe that that uh, especially with a good therapist who can adapt the type of therapy to what's needed, mm -hmm. even supportive psychotherapy. That's uh, 
that's the ideal general rule, general approach. Yeah. yeah. Agreed. And in, in my experience as a therapist, I've had clients who um, are struggling to make progress in therapy because of their despair and hopelessness and their feeling of a lack of control um, over the problem. <clears throat> and then they get on a good medicine that just sort of raises them out of the muck enough that they can see that what's possible and then they can make a lot better use of therapy. Mm-hmm. Um, and that doesn't happen with everybody, but so yeah, I'm an advocate for the right medicine at the right time for the right person, um, for the right purpose. And to bring it back to ketamine, uh, I use ketamine often, not personally, but in my <laughs> Reed is on clients, right now. <laughs> in my clients to get them to that place of, of being unstuck and able to engage in therapy for lasting change. Because like we were talking about a little bit earlier, uh, when ketamine works for many people, it's not permanent. It's not a one and done. Uh, there is a duration to the ketamine effect. And sometimes that means getting someone out of an episode. So the episode's gone and they're, they're smooth sailing for a, a long while. But sometimes it means you've got a couple weeks, a window of opportunity to get on another med or get in a course of therapy and get something on board that's going to help you forge ahead. Yeah. So I want to get your opinion on the typical course of treatment, because what people will typically see if they go to one of the IV clinics is this sort of six total ketamine infusions, and maybe they occur over the course of two or three weeks. Mm-hmm. And in my, I think in, in my uh, study of the literature, that's been pretty typical of the studies, that that's kind of yeah. what has been researched as a course of treatment. Um, but it's, I don't know if it's ideal or, uh, we've done that protocol at our clinics too. Um, it seems that when you do ketamine, uh, in close succession, you know, you do like two or three treatments in a week that you prolong the benefits. They don't go away Mm -hmm. as quickly. Um, but we've also been creative about the way we've, we've used it for cap, not necessarily having to adhere to those, that Mm -hmm. six treatment model. What are your, what are your thoughts? Yeah. I think it it depends on what you're treating mm-hmm. big time. So if there's a severe episode of depression and time is of the essence, like meaning say there's suicidality on board, um, a good example would be in a psych unit. You go in there for admission for safety, to, mm-hmm. keep, to keep yourself safe because you're struggling with hopelessness, suicidality. That's when the sooner we can get the full benefits, the better. Um, even if it means it's harder to fit in the the psychotherapy sessions, the concern with doing three a week is like that's hard to fit in the integration sessions mm-hmm. in between. So if it's a a severe episode with with despair, suicidality, I lean more on the two to three times a week over two to three weeks. Say that that six sessions has the best evidence for getting someone getting the most number of people out of that episode um, and out of that dangerous territory. But if we're doing like, um, if someone has more of a a chronic mental health struggle and has reached a point of being stuck in therapy or has some other, you know, crisis in their life where it's not, um, you know, such a dangerous one with suicidality and you have the time to really prioritize the therapy even more, then that's when I like the protocols of more like once or twice a week, or even for some, you know, once every two weeks or, um, and decreasing it to the least number of doses needed with, uh, 
you know, therapy taking front and center. Yeah, I agree. Um, especially for, for my clients who are naive to non-ordinary states. So they've never had a psychedelic experience. Um, and they'll ask me like, okay, how many ketamine treatments will I need? Usually what I'll say is let's start with one and we'll see what comes up because we could have a lot to talk about depending on yeah. what your ketamine experience is like. And rushing to another ketamine treatment might be a mistake. Uh, it's, I mean, not that it would be super harmful, but like we could spend a lot of good time unpacking and, and integrating what comes up just for one ketamine treatment. Mm -hmm. And that's why at here in, in our clinics from the very beginning, uh, even though many will do six sessions over a certain time period, we don't require that. Like some might benefit most from like once a week for a month or in individualized approach, depending on how the first one goes and the second. So there are, there are many uh, clinics out there that have a very like strict protocol where you have to just not only do them all in that timeline, but pay for them all up front. And, uh, and it can get expensive. I think that's another factor to talk about is ketamine, because it's off-label in psychiatry, is not covered by most insurances. There's some exceptions. Um, and then there's also Spravato that we could talk about, the nasal spray S-ketamine that was approved a few years ago. Right. Yeah. yeah, so ketamine, the drug itself, because it's, you know, on the World Health Organization's list of essential medicines, it's a, it's a drug that's been around for a while. It itself is not that expensive. Mm -hmm. um, but administered by a team, you know, uh, it, the price goes up. <clears throat> and so Spravato comes along. Uh, maybe you could talk a little bit about what Spravato is um, because it's, it's, a, it's the psychiatric approach for the most part, um, but it's FDA approved for the treatment of depression. And so it was covered by insurances for the most yeah. part. So it was March 2019 when uh, Spravato got FDA approval for treatment-resistant depression. The following year, it was uh, another indication was added, major depressive disorder with suicidality. Mm -hmm. um, because, you know, this is essentially the first FDA-approved rapid antidepressant we have on the market. Mm. And a novel mechanism for the first time in a long time meaning like working on the glutamate system rather than SSRIs and serotonin or SNRIs, yeah. uh, serotonin, norepinephrine. Um, so when that came out uh, or got approved, you know, we decided to adopt it in clinics and, and I've given it thousands and thousands of times since. And every single time we've leveraged an individual client's insurance because it is FDA approved and because we can, and also because it's expensive, people are not going to pay for Spravato out of pocket in general because it's it's expensive as a patented, uh, F, recently FDA approved med um, where they could go pay out of pocket for ketamine that even though that can get expensive is, is less than a patented S-ketamine nasal spray um, that you know, costs hundreds of dollars per dose. Right. So in, in case we didn't mention it, S-ketamine, Spravato, is uh, what, the mirror image of the ketamine molecule? It's... Yeah, one of the two enantiomers that make up the ketamine mixture. Mm. Like you'd have, uh, um, say, Adderall is amphetamine salts. The, the uh, two enantiomers, right-handed, left-handed molecule versions in the mix, whereas dexedrine, um, is one of the enantiomers like uh, S-ketamine is to ketamine. Okay. Yeah. Or Lexapro 
is another example. That's one of the enantiomers where Selexa is the mix of both of them. Mm -hmm. So a little, a little cleaned up or um, focused on one of them with a slightly different um, effect, but pretty similar. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so, so we've tried to help some of our clients who <clears throat> that are benefiting from ketamine treatment, but maybe they can't afford the you know the IM or the IV or Spravato, um, that and it's appropriate for them. We might prescribe like a compounded nasal spray or a compounded lozenge to be used you know as directed by the prescriber and in conjunction with psychotherapy, um, and those are typically a hell of a lot cheaper. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so if someone is coming in for psycholytic therapy sessions they might have seen their prescriber and in collaboration with a therapist gotten a prescription for a lozenge or nasal spray and then um, also a protocol for taking it once they arrive in clinic before the session and having a ride home and all that stuff um, and in in some cases like we've talked about elsewhere uh, if someone lives far away if they've come in and they've done well on ketamine with us in clinic for say their severe depression to keep it at bay um, under the right conditions, we might send them home with a ketamine prescription. If there's a caregiver who we know and can vet and we'll sit with them through it and we have frequent follow-ups and touch points. So. Which is a little bit different than some of these companies that will um, do an online screening and send you ketamine in the mail. Um, we've talked a bit about that particular treatment approach and I think mm. there've been some companies that have spun up and then folded that uh, haven't done well, but there are still some out there. You can get a lot of ketamine online. Yeah. Um, and again, <clears throat> you've heard Tim Ferriss talk about it. You've heard a lot of people talk about this model as it being helpful for a lot of people, but um, all those parameters you just described that we operate under when we prescribe take-home ketamine aren't uh, typically as present in yeah. some of those. There's, there's a debate going on in the state of Utah right now of what constitu constitutes anesthesia mm. when it comes to ketamine? At what dose do you become um, like less responsive and where you really need the monitoring that comes along with, with ketamine? And, and my worry about some of the uh, virtual ketamine clinics and take-home doses is that if they're doing whopping doses without ever meeting the patient, then uh, there's a risk of uh, making it difficult more broadly for uh, the clients to access it in clinic. Like we're facing potential like regulation changes. Like it won't make it inaccessible, just tighten it up for like continuous monitoring or things if that, if that goes through because of some of these, uh, what I might call like reckless situations where someone's just gotten too, way too much ketamine unsupervised. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, we've covered a lot of ground. Um, Certainly, this isn't this uh, the exhaustive treatment of ketamine or ketamine-assisted therapy. But um, I think one one final point, you know, psychedelic therapy frontiers, we talk about a lot of different psychedelics, a lot of different psychedelic therapy approaches. We're excited about the possibility of a lot of these different medicines being FDA-approved. Uh, people will sometimes ask us, are you going to stop doing ketamine treatment when you have access to things like psilocybin or LSD or DMT or 5-MeO? MDMA, uh, no, <laughs> ketamine is a great tool and I oh, think we'll yeah. keep it in the quiver for sure. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, and that might look like, uh, you know, ketamine helping someone, um, get to a certain place where they're ready to do psilocybin assisted 
psychotherapy and clinic for depression or MDMA assisted psychotherapy for PTSD. Like the fact of the matter is we, uh, you know, we all have a number of different struggles in our lives. Sometimes those land at the same time. It might be depression overlapping with PTSD and, and different tools have different uses and ketamine um, as this readily available one that we understand really well in terms of safety, dosage, etc. Um, and with a short duration of like 90 minutes or less for the experience. Um, mm. Yeah, it has so many uh, uses for us these days in, in clinic, and that's not going away. I don't think yeah. so. Yeah. Well, thanks, Reed. Thank you, Steve. Let's pick this up again. So much more to talk about with ketamine. For sure. Psychedelic Therapy Frontiers is brought to you by Numinous, a mental wellness company committed to tackling the global mental health crisis by delivering best-in-class psychedelic-assisted therapies, contributing to the body of primary and clinical psychedelic research, and fostering healing through community connection and social responsibility. You can learn more about Numinous at Numinous.com. That's N-U-M-I-N-U-S.com. If you enjoyed the show today and you want to support us, here's how you do it. Rate and review the show on platforms like Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Subscribe to the Numinous YouTube channel. Like the videos and share it. Share the show or clips of the show with someone that you think will enjoy it. Hey listeners, it's Steve Thayer here, letting you know that Numinous offers unique training opportunities for mental health practitioners to develop their skills and expertise in offering psychedelic-assisted therapy to clients. These courses are carefully crafted by Numinous professionals like myself, Reed, Joe, and others, and offer a variety of high-quality learning experiences. So if you would like to learn more about these trainings, you can find the link in the show notes below. Or you can visit Numinous.com forward slash training. That's Numinous.com forward slash training. The content of this podcast does not constitute medical advice or mental health treatment. Consult with a medical or mental health professional if you believe you are in need of mental health treatment.